Good day, ladies and gentlemen. I'm Al Watkins, and this is Watkins Word, the voice from the heartland for the hearts and minds of America, coming to you from the banks of the Mississippi River in the gateway to the west, beautiful St. Louis, Missouri. Watkins Word Studios sitting high atop the esteemed law offices of Codner, Watkins, and Klecker remain home to the show, committed to providing you with insight into and knowledge of the events and issues of the day. Ron Burgundy. He is a legend to some, obviously just a few, but some nonetheless. Ron was the fictitious star of the ever-rancid hit film Anchorman. He said it himself, he's kind of a big deal. Well, the city of Ferguson is kind of a big deal. There are a lot of folks out there who are trying to make it a really big deal. But flying beneath the radar, one can always find the quiet story. The quiet story that comes out of nowhere to genuinely become a really big deal. And as the embers of Ferguson continue to burn, and as scores of self-appointed spokespersons for one angle or another, one aspect or another of the fiasco in Ferguson vie to be relevant and vie for attention, the real story is quietly becoming a big deal. Buried beneath the hype and hyperbole of all that has become Ferguson is a tale of woe which hits at the core of our great land. It is widely known that this land of freedom is empowered by laws and equal enforcement of those laws. There is an undercurrent of equality with respect to enforcement of laws. The law is the law, and a crime is a crime. Justice simply must and will be done. Play by the rules and all will be fine. But there is a creak in the floorboards of this fundamental tenet of our great country. The story is worth noting. It currently occupies the back pages of the newspapers. It has garnered little attention, but for the wrong reason. Well, it's a story about good and evil and bad. Evil implies intent. Bad implies a lot of things, including negligence, as in He did a bad job. A fellow named Tony Jordan lived on the north side of St. Louis, Tony's Black. He lived in a tough neighborhood, one of the toughest to be found anywhere in the shadow of the Gateway Arch. He was employed. He had kids, six of them, in fact. He was a superintendent at an apartment complex in the heart of an urban combat zone comprised virtually entirely of low-income black residents. The crime in this area is virtually 100% black-on-black crime. Tony also had his own business in the lawn care field. He was a handyman, too. He paid his taxes. He loved and supported his children. They range in age from 14 to 1. Residing in the apartment complex Tony took care of was a lady by the name of Jessica Thompson. She, too, was young, 25 to be exact. She had one kid. She was employed, too. She paid her taxes, too. Jessica is black, too. She supported and loved her son. She was a single mom raising her kid alone with the help of her grandmother, a spry septuagenarian with a suburban private school education who, in her own right, is the foster mother of multiple children who needed homes. Well, on July 9, 2014, summertime in the city, summertime in St. Louis, shortly after midnight, a fellow Jessica used to date forced entry into her apartment and commenced assaulting her, choking her, She broke away, grabbed the phone, called 911. She did the right thing. And as she did so, Tony, who lived next door, 
came to her aid and confronted her ex-boyfriend assailant, not with a gun. He calmly told him it was time to go. The assailant, assessing the situation, permitted sense to get the better of him at the time, and he left. This brief encounter between Tony and the assailant occurred while Jessica calmly and clearly told the 911 operator her address, what was happening, and the urgent need for police to respond. So far, so good. Tony stepped outside Jessica's apartment and stood vigil. Jessica cowered in her apartment, protecting her son, shaken to the core by the violent assault. And they waited. And they waited. And they waited some more. The police did not respond to the scene. Ten minutes lapsed. Twenty minutes lapsed. Forty minutes went by. No police. No sirens. No nothing. Well, except for one thing. The assailant returned. Forty minutes after he left, the assailant returned, but this time he returned with a gun. He shot and killed Tony in the courtyard outside of Jessica's apartment. The assailant then jumped up onto the first floor balcony to Jessica's apartment, forced entry into the apartment, and shot and killed Jessica. In the blink of an eye, seven children of tender years lost their mom and dad. Seven children of tender years are without their parent. Seven kids, ages 14 to 1, must navigate their formative years in a rough, rough part of the world without the guidance and support and love of their mom or dad. And what happened to the police? Well, the dispatcher had one job. When taking a 911 call, the sole job of the dispatcher is to get an address right and call it out to the responding officers. The dispatcher who took Jessica's 911 call was a young, white female. She heard the address but repeated it to the responding officers wrong. The tape of the 911 call was clear. The address recited by Jessica was articulated with absolute clarity. The address radioed out by the dispatcher was the wrong address, being an address on the next block of the street on which Jessica and Tony lived. Not only that, the address the dispatcher read out actually did not exist. In short, there was no such address. The responding police heard the shots that killed Jessica and Tony. They heard them because they had, for almost a half hour, been looking for a non-existent address a block away. The tape of the 911 call evidences clearly that, as distressed as Jessica was, she knew to call the police and provide them with a clear recital of her address. That same tape depicts a 911 dispatcher who, quite frankly, could not have cared less. Quite frankly, the dispatcher for the police sounded as though she could not be bothered almost as if she was filing her nails, chewing gum, and watching a soap opera all at the same time, and she was rudely interrupted by a call. That's what's called reckless indifference, and as a result of that reckless indifference, two people are dead, and seven kids are alone. The response time for police in the city of St. Louis is pretty darn good, if you live in the right part of town, that is. Holly Hills on the south side and the central west end by the Tony Entertainment Spots and World's Fair mansions, they get a lot of attention. But the young, tax-paying, loving, doting, employed, child-supporting, and heroic man, and the employed, loving, tax-paying, doting, child-rearing mother, they didn't live in the right part of town. They did not live in a World's Fair mansion or an enclave of white, upper-middle-class city residents. They were black. They lived in the ghetto. And now, they don't live at all. They're dead. 
and to their children, their seven children. There was no equality in the enforcement of the law. There was no protection. There was no value in playing by the rules. To these seven kids, this is kind of a big deal. And to each and every one of us, this is the deal, the deal breaker. Like Ron Burgundy said, don't act like you're not impressed. I'm Al Watkins. That was Watkins' word, the final word until tomorrow.